Hello and welcome to PH Pod for the fifth episode of season three. I'm Connor McCombs. And I'm Bethany Hollenborg. Thank you for joining us on what is a special episode of PH Pod. Yes, it is an extra special episode. For the first time, we here at PH Pod are taking you on location with us. This season, we're focused on public health at work, and we had the opportunity to attend the American Public Health Association's annual conference and see just that. We interviewed public health professionals and students on site in the hustle and bustle of the APHA exhibit floor. This episode, we'll be diving into public health in academics and educational settings. We interviewed Diana Vasquez and Emma Blackson. Not only is this special, it's a double feature. Be sure to tune in for part two in our next episode where we discuss the future of public health at the intersection of law and community. Let's dive into our first interview on education settings and public health. My name is Emma Blackson. I'm a second year PhD student in the Social Behavioral and Population Science Department at Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. So what have you been working on recently or are you working on right now? I know you had a talk here this morning that we had the pleasure of attending. Awesome. Right now I'm really concerned about implicit racial bias among U.S. educators because for me, uh, I love public health. I have an undergraduate degree in public health and a master's in public health. also have a master's in social policy, but that's a conversation for another day. Um, one of my favorite things is looking at social determinants and structural determinants of health because I think before we can get to the and health part of it, it's important to figure out where we stand in the you know social and structural part. So I'm really always care about uh, U.S. educators, harshly because I was one, um, but also you know they are usually our children's first stop in this whole vast thing we call life. So I think it's really important. Um, kind of look at those things. So I'm looking at implicit racial bias among these educators um, and what like in the session that we just came from there talked about like words mattering and you know I, I used to give uh, uh, implicit uh, bias trainings and you know we always say everyone has implicit bias right and that is true everyone does but I think the the thing that we need to understand the words matter and what does it mean to be pro-white but also anti-black, right? Because anti-blackness really talks about the dehumanization of black people. And when we're talking about U.S. educators, what does it mean to dehumanize black children, right? And how does that impact their health? And then also on the flip side of that, I'm also interested in talking to children directly and <laughs> figuring out what their perceptions of racism is in the classroom and kind of overall, but mostly in the classroom since they spend majority of their time there. And how does that impact their mental health and overall well-being? Because we know it does. Um, and it's, it's nice to be able to hear it from them directly because they, they are the experts in that, right? So we've heard critical race theory come up a lot in the news recently, especially with states' issues. How does critical race theory and this idea of in-classroom pro-white and anti-black interact with each other? What are you seeing in your research? Absolutely. Um, so recently, well, not even recently, but in the last few years, a lot of states have been very much gearing up to uh, get rid of critical race theory, which is really hilarious to me because most of the state legislators don't really know what critical race theory is, right? They just don't like and the they, term. Exactly. exactly. It's become a thing that they can rally behind together and centralize their base, but um, it includes anything from not talking about racism or discriminatory things within the United States to making children feel bad. 
when they're talking about making children feel bad, it's very clear which children they're prioritizing in that conversation, even though it's not explicitly stated. So when we're thinking about, you know, how does hearing these like anti-CRT things all of the time impact teachers' potential biases? And a lot of my research on the presentation that I just did talked and, and showed that for black educators specifically, there are some nuances between a black educator living in an anti-CRT state versus not. So while both groups still had neutral biases, the uh, black educators who are living in um, these anti-CRT states, they have, they're getting closer and closer to a pro-white bias, right? And I wonder how does that impact their teaching practices? How does that uh, impact their decision-making when it comes to school discipline, right? And we know, you know, studies have shown us that all of those things impact specifically their racial biases and the subsequent school discipline. It impacts how children begin to internalize feelings about school. And we know that school and education overall can really help promote positive health, right? Not only, you know, in the here and now, but also across the life course. So it's so important for us to kind of parse those things through. When we're looking at academics, obviously, we do a lot of measuring, a lot of researching. What do you see as the application of this research? Where do you see it going next? That's so interesting. I, here at APHA, I have learned a lot about what I think I want to do, which is really amazing because we've only been here for two days. Um, Yay. But I think I want to stick in schools. So we know the importance of education, especially with the reference to children of the future, you know, and what they learn in the classroom is what they take into those interpersonal relationships, but the professional relationships that they make. They're going to have jobs, they're going to participate in society at an even larger level. Not like they aren't a part of society, but when thinking about the future of our country and what kids are taught, how do you see your research helping to influence that? What are the change in action that you're looking for? I hope that my research helps to provide the evidence that things need to change first and foremost like we we run out of well we'll do it next time or maybe we'll change a little bit here and change a little bit here we've run out of time right and as we know uh children of color are are i think i, I forget the specific year but now there are more children of color born after i want to say like 2015 or something than than white children so i feel like you know as we continue to diversify the population we really need to make sure everyone is reflected in that right and that children can see themselves because it's super duper important and i don't know i hope that my work can lead and aim towards that um and also this concept of pro-white anti-black focusing on anti-black it is my hope that you know, we no longer just discard, well, everyone has implicit bias, right? And we really think about what does it mean to be anti-black? What does the dehumanization of black people, what does that mean? Because that's not just the dehumanization of black people, that's black feelings, right? That, that's, that's black personhood, that's everything. So I hope I provide the evidence, right? That is my crossing fingers, that's the hope. Um, and then eventually uh, going towards like interventions and in, in, in different schools and seeing how that can be helpful, seeing how um, schools who do promote social cultural curriculum, if they can be of any type of, uh, if they provide some sort of evidence, right? And some of the things that can be helpful there and seeing if their children have better health outcomes and better mental health and whatnot. I'm at step one. <laughs> I gotta, you know, got a lot of things to accomplish before I can get to step two. 
Is there anything here at APHA that you've seen that you're really excited about that's caught your attention? Public health, specifically a lot of the, the posters and the student sessions, have really given me a lot to think about, and I'm really excited. I'm also really excited today to see one of the structural racism panels, um, and it's really nice to know and, and validating in a way to know that like this is where our field is moving towards. So I'm really excited, yeah. Students are doing such amazing work. Like you, you are in your PhD program and doing amazing work. Thank like, you. There's a lot to look forward to in what is the current student population mm -hmm. of public health. Because we're the future leaders of public health, right? Like, you know, 15, 10, 15 years from now, we're going to be the ones who are, you know, well, I mean, yeah. Slightly more wrinkled and... Sli slightly more wrinkled, little. you know, you know. Slightly more wrinkled, but, you know, leading... <laughs> more refined exactly um, but leading you know these sessions and encouraging new leadership right and encouraging student leaders and I think that's gonna be so awesome you are a student you're still getting your PhD but you are also leading this research and doing awesome stuff with it you presented a panel here so you're both you are a student and a professional so we have one final question for you and we ask this of all of our guests and it's called a short sentence so it's essentially saying a lot by saying a little and leaving our listeners with something that they can remember and carry with them. So given everything we've spoken about here today, anti-racism, critical race theory, all of your research, your work as a student and as a professional, what is your short sentence? Children are our future, so let's invest in them. I like that one. Thank that's, you so much for sitting down with us today, Emma. We really appreciate it. If you could please introduce yourself. Yes. Uh, my name is Deanna Vasquez. I'm an MPH student at BUSBH. Uh, I'm in the environmental health concentration. And this is my last semester. Fingers crossed if I get my ILE done. You are here presenting on research that you've been doing for APHA. Could you tell us a little bit about what you are presenting on? Yes, totally. Uh, so the research that I presented on was with this summer research that I did in Boston. This summer I spent time with the Boston Teachers Union. I'm very interested in occupational health and safety and in particular labor and how we can use labor with public health. Uh, so with the Boston Teachers Union, I was investigating psychosocial hazards and physical hazards that the membership was facing. Shockingly or not shockingly, COVID-19 really puts, I would say health and safety as a forefront issue for the union especially when like transition to in-person learning happened. A lot of educators were very skeptical. The average school building in BPS is 80 years old. Uh, based on 2020 data, 30, only 35 schools out of the 129 schools have central HVAC. So most of the schools, like almost 75% of the schools don't have ventilation uh, or you know, full ventilation and don't have air conditioning. So that was like already like a big thing that folks are like, we know COVID is a respiratory disease, I don't want to go to work and be stuck in a classroom where there's no air movement happening. Could you please, for our listeners, explain central HVAC and the importance of that? I don't um, think most people think of it as a public health issue, so it's always nice to hear the people working in it <laughs> explain why it is. HVAC. So it stands for heating, ventilation, air conditioning. And I think most people don't even really think about it because, you know, you're in, a, you're in a room and the climate generally feels fine. Uh, so you're generally not thinking, you know, it's one of those things that if it's working well, you're not thinking about it. Um, but in terms of like COVID, where we know it's a, it's a respiratory disease that gets transmitted via uh, particles in the air, you need ventilation to keep uh, the airflow going. So in BTU, a lot of these classrooms have stagnant ambient air. There's no 
uh, ventilation happening. And obviously a lot of folks have a higher risk of getting COVID. So that was the impetus, I would say, for, for studying the health and safety. But during my summer with the BTU, I learned like there's a lot of things going on in the buildings. A lot of the windows don't open. A lot of the windows are like sealed shut or like nailed shut. Uh, it, yeah, it was very eye-opening for me even to see how, how bad. Heat was a big one. You know, climate change is making heat waves and, and extreme heat a bigger issue. One of the highlights for me, at least this summer, was uh, visiting Mass Kosh, which is a, a Kosh center, is like a worker center. Uh, it's a national organization, but states have chapters too. So Massachusetts has a Mass Kosh. And they have a youth organizer program where they work with high school students in the summer. And the high schoolers are organizing a no test day when the heat index inside their classroom is 85 or higher because they have to take the MCAS, which is like, you know, a subject exam It's really important for them so that they can pass. Uh, but sometimes they have to take these tests when their classroom's like 90 degrees, when it feels like 90 degrees to them. Uh, and so they're trying to organize no test days on those days because obviously they're saying that it really impacts their, their ability to, to think and, and their cognitive functions to take these tests. So that was really eye-opening for me. And I'd love to hearing from them because they have like, you know, they're really fun and cool. That's amazing that high schoolers are organizing for that, especially considering that they see this problem that's happening in school. I can't concentrate when it's too hot in the classroom and I can't remember the things I studied for. Um, but not only are they talking about it amongst themselves, but they're trying to elicit change. When I was in high school, we did not try to elicit change on those kinds of things, you know? Like right. we just you dealt with it. You like took it. We just it. complained about it you to, complained. Our, to each other. <laughs> you recognize that you're all experiencing the same problem, but the, the support that they feel or the ability for them to be able to mobilize themselves to try to change that environment is so empowering for students. That's amazing to see. Yeah. Totally, it was great. I loved it. I think that was a definite highlight. So how did your presentation go here? Could you tell us a little bit about the end results of your study that you've done? Yeah, and also how has it been as a student presenting here at APHA? I imagine that might be a little overwhelming. Oh, that was so daunting. That was very daunting. <laughs> In terms of us, as being a student presenting, I was, I think, a little bit intimidated. <laughs> you know, I feel like I'm just, I'm like a baby in this, in this, and I, you know, by no means, I don't even have like, you know, I'm not even, I'm still a student, I haven't graduated yet. Um, but yeah, I guess it's like two sides of the same coin. Like, I'm excited because I'm like a sponge, like absorbing everything, and at the same time, I feel like I don't know what I'm talking about. So yeah, I, I guess intimidating and exciting is the right word. My research found that three main categories of hazards that were really, uh, I would say, important to the membership were environmental hazards. So that meant like air quality, uh, mold in the classroom, pests in the classroom. There was like mice problems in some of the buildings, uh, building hazards. So as I mentioned, like paint chipping, windows not opening, extremely hot classrooms, extremely cold classrooms. Asbestos came up a lot for folks. And then finally, emotional hazards, so like the psychosocial hazards. A lot of people felt like ignored, uh, disrespected. Some people uh, experienced racism, sexism in the workplace. So those were like the three main categories that really shone through that the members were really concerned about. Uh, and that was really kind of the goal was to identify what the priorities for the members were. And then hopefully from there, the BTU can start, I guess, making more strategic decisions around what's the next thing that we fight for. Uh, as a as a union so that our members are safe at work. Absolutely.
Wow, that's amazing that you were able to help on that and like provide with those like key areas for them. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so now that you've made your presentation and you get to enjoy the rest of APHA or things you've already enjoyed, have you seen anything that's caught your eye, something you really want to check out? What's excited you about being here so far? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, well, first thing, I think that really caught my eye is how friendly everyone is. Like, you know, you're just like standing in line next to someone and you start having a conversation and then they like immediately give you your, their business card. They're like, oh yeah, call me anytime. Like, everyone's being very, very friendly, which is really nice because uh, like I mentioned, I feel like I'm a newbie and so any more connections are always great to get to know people. Uh, I've, yeah, I've done some really cool, I've gone to some really cool presentations. Oh, you know, one I really liked was the title was Workers Organizing for Justice. And they were, they were like presenters from different uh, worker organizations who were just presenting on their projects. So the first speaker, Saleka, is from FAMCOSA, which is a, it's from BPS actually. Families and, and parents of students organized, again, because of COVID, because they knew that a lot of these buildings were not safe. So they created a organization where they and BTU were like advocating for safer schools before they reopened. So Saleka spoke for FAMCOSA's um, perspective. Uh, an MT, MIT grad student spoke about the MIT Grad Student Union, which is really cool to hear as a grad student. Uh, and then finally, who was the last speaker? Oh, la the last speaker, her name was Andrea. She was from Texas. And she was explaining how being a construction worker in Texas, I didn't know this, but they have the highest rates of, of mortality than any other state. Oh, wow. uh, Texas is a right to work state, so you can't unionize. Um, wow. It's illegal. And it's illegal to unionize in a state in this country. Yeah. Oh, multiple states. Multiple states. Wow. Yeah. And because of that, they created a program that, you know, to win certain, uh, if you're a developer, to win certain projects, you had to have like a minimum standards for your workers. So she was sharing a little bit about that. But it was really interesting to hear because I, I had no idea how high the mortality rate is in Texas. She said that one in three days a construction worker basically dies. One in three days. Wow, one in three days, that's yeah. That's way too frequent. Especially considering Texas is known for being the state that's developing the fastest and the biggest right now. I learned that too. I didn't know that. Austin apparently is like building like, it's like yeah. hotcakes. It is, yeah. They are building building like hotcakes. <laughs> <laughs> they are, the stories are as tall as the stacks they make. Right. Um, no, it's, that's, in, there are so many people that are in the construction business right now in Texas because the state has so many industries that are just building up and property is cheaper. There's lots of movement down to Texas right now. I can't believe that I haven't heard anything about I the mortality I have no idea rates. it was so dangerous. That's insane. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. We had a lot of um, interesting points. So apparently they also get paid less on average than any other state if you're a construction worker in Texas. So it sounds like they could really benefit from a union. Union, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I would think so. I'm from North Carolina. North Carolina is also a right-to-work state. Oh, so yeah. I thought unions. Maybe this is silly, but growing up, I thought unions were like a thing from the past. I was like, wait, the unions still exist? I had no idea. And then I moved to Massachusetts, and I realized, oh yeah, they're they still exist. Massachusetts is the state that taught me that union movement still exists today. The only union that I know of in Louisiana is the teachers' union. Oh, really? That's the only one that I that I really know about at all. And yeah. I thought that was kind of the only one that still existed. I was like, well, the steel workers are gone, oh, and yeah. the coal miners are gone, so it must just be teachers now. 
<laughs> and then I moved to Massachusetts. That's my bad. I should have educated myself on it. I mean, it's also just a result of the context you're in. If that's the context you're in, that's all you're experiencing. Yeah, you're told that unions are a thing of the past. It's taught that way in history. You're not taught about the living history of unions. You're just taught about, you know, Ford Mobile and the ways that cars <laughs> created unions. Totally. And I think that's why I really liked this time with the BTU, because I also I had a pretty, I think, myopic view of unions. I thought they were like a blue collar thing only. And I, obviously since then I have not, I'm like unlearning that, right? There's a teacher's union, there's the grad student workers unions, there's, uh, I mean like all these different tech or like companies are unionizing, all these nonprofits are unionizing. So it's, it certainly feels like a watershed moment for labor. I, if you can't tell labor is like my, I love labor. Um, <laughs> it's so cool. I'm seeing a passion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it feels cool. It feels like there's like a, a resurgence of, around it. Given everything we've talked about and your studies as an MPH student, what does public health mean to you? Oh, that is such a big question. What does public health mean to me? This, I think this kind of goes back to what I was thinking before I, I went back to school, before grad school. You know, the reason I was so interested in public health is because I feel like uh, everything around us is public health, if that, if that makes sense. You know, all the social determinants, all the physical determinants really influence our life. So I think public health to me means all these invisible forces that influence who we are and, and, and then identifying what they are and, and making sure that they're equitable, I guess. So we do this thing here at Public Health Post and PHPod where we ask a short sentence of all of our guests. It's essentially how do you say a lot by saying a little? So what would your short sentence be? Power in, in numbers. There's power in a collective power. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so thank much you for joining so much us. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Galen. Yeah. PHPod is brought to you by the Boston University School of Public Health and Public Health Post, which informs and inflects the broader conversation in health and social justice. Every day we feature new articles about the health of the population. Join the conversation by following us on your favorite social media. You can also subscribe to the PHP Friday Roundup to see our stories of the week delivered directly to your inbox by visiting publichealthpost.org. Thanks for listening.